Well, hello everybody, and I'll say salamu alaikum, which means peace be upon you as well. <coughs> oh, you can actually hear because generally these. I did hear that this was your first program, and I'm hoping because of me it doesn't become the last. <laughs> right? <coughs> this is, uh, I see that we have quite a bit of a diversity here, and while that's great for us to be together in that diversity, it does make it difficult for the speaker sometimes to talk to everybody. And I don't claim to be a professional, but I hope uh, I, we're going to have time for questions and answers at the end. So don't expect to understand everything. Um, keep it a maybe 40, 60. If you understand 40, think you're very lucky. right? I'll try to keep it as simple as possible. Uh, and then, of course, if you have any queries at the end, I'm happy to stay, inshallah, to, to take care of them. So, yes, this is not the time of Eid. Eid has passed. Um, Eid was, what about three weeks ago, that was the second Eid, just depends on which one you call first and which one you call the second, you can either have a large gap between them or a small gap, so if you call this one the, the, second, the first one because it's the greater one, then the second one will come about ten months afterwards, and if you call the first one the first one, well, which is the first one, I'm getting lost myself, <laughs> anyway, let's drop that, so um, one was about two to three weeks ago, and the other one was about three months ago. Let's put it that way. They're very close together, and at, growing up, I used to actually, when I started thinking about these things for myself, I actually started getting very curious. Why do we have two Eids? Because my concept of Eid was just like Christmas, or um, because in school we did Christmas things in the primary school. So my concept was, okay, Eid must be Christmas, and they, you do it once a year, but hey, we got two but why do we have two so close together? It, specifically, it's about 70 days in between. Two months and 10 days. That's what the, uh, that's what the difference in, in the two Eids are. So I used to always wonder, why not have it six months apart? Because you've just had one, I've got all these gifts. And then I, get, I, I feel that my uncles and aunts feel obliged to give me a gift again, just in two months and 10 days. If it was six months apart, you know, I can understand that. So that was because of my ignorance and unawareness of the significance of the month. And now that I understand it, I hope, properly, now <clears throat> it actually makes a lot more sense that it be this way. And that's what I'm going to try to explain. Firstly, Eid literally comes from a term that means to return. And because these are, these are days of merry, merry, merriment and joy and they come back every year, so they've been called Eid. Every word in Arabic, and I'd, you know, it'd be nice to actually see some of your names and what they mean. Every word in Arabic comes from a root term. There's nothing out of that. Everything has to come from a root term. And here, it just comes from to return. And thus, it, uh, the Eid returns every year. Then, obviously, to distinguish the two Eids, we have an Eid al-Fitr and we have an Eid al-Adha. Now, don't get too worried about those terms if you're uh, finding them hard to say, because there is a Fitr which is a ta, and uh, it is kind of difficult to say. And the other one has a dad, which is one of the most complex and unique letters of the Arabic language. I mean, how you even say it takes a lot of practice to even get it right. So Eid al-Fitr, Eid al-Adha. What they mean, Eid al-Fitr means the Eid of ending the fast, or ending fasting. That's the Eid al-Fitr. Eid al-Adha means the Eid of sacrifice. So that makes it much more simple now. One Eid, the first one, let's just keep it that way, Eid al-Fitr signals the end of the fasting month of Ramadan. That month could be 29 days or 30 days depending on when you see the moon and what people agree upon. 
So generally, the Islamic calendar goes by the lunar year. And that tends to be 10 days, approximately 10 days shorter than the Gregorian year, which is the solar year. So you could imagine it as <clears throat> two wheels, one larger than the other, Gregorian larger wheel, and uh, the, the lunar year, the smaller wheel, and you can imagine how much ground that covers. So it requires 355 days for a year to finish, and that's why Eid will always be approximately 10 days earlier every year. This causes a lot of a challenge. This causes a great challenge and sometimes a nightmare for employees and employers. When do they take off? And then it doesn't have to be on one particular day every year. It could actually be one of two days. Because if the moon is seen on the twenty on the eve of the or the night of the twenty eighth of the month or the twenty ninth of the month, then the next day is the first day of the next month, because the moon signals the next month. And if it's not seen, then we do an extra day and we count that as part of the previous month and do 30 days. You can't have 31 days in a month, you just have 29 or 30, and that's what we generally go with. So there is this. Now in the second Eid, because it takes place not on the first of the month, the Islamic month, it actually takes place on the 10th of the month. So you would at least know 10 days before. So that is a bit of, a comf- a bit of comfort that at least you can try to take off uh, once the month has been determined and the Eid is going to be nine days later. So then it, that makes it a bit easy if that's any comfort for anybody. You know what some people do? Some schools, do, they just give you two days off. Right, so give me the possibilities. It's going to be this day or this day. Okay, we'll just take both days off. But make sure you come the next day. I had a friend whose, uh, whose son was going to school and he didn't send him on the day of Eid and neither did he send him the next day. And he was called in by the head teacher. So the head teacher is saying, why didn't your son come? Son, the Eid was yesterday. So this was his argument. I'm not telling you guys to use it. But this was his argument. He says, look, you understand that on Christmas, you are up till late. You don't sleep on time on Christmas. So our children are also up till late, 12 o'clock. How would you expect them to come and be productive at school? So that's why they needed to rest it off. right? So anyway, I'll leave that up in the air. Now, as I mentioned, when we look at Eid, the understanding that I finally developed, it has a religious significance, right? Clearly, it's a religious day. It has a spiritual paradigm. And then beyond that, it has an award aspect, especially the first Eid has an award aspect. and I'll come, in, I'll come to that. But then above all, beyond that, there is the aspect of the joy and the merriment and the excitement and the celebration. That's what happens after all that. Now, how do you mix all of that together? You've got religion, you've got enjoyment, celebration, you've got an award from God, and you've got uh, a spiritual paradigm. And, you know, that, that is really what makes it so wonderful, to bring all of that together. <clears throat> Eid al-Fitr, if we start with that one, which is the one that follows Ramadan. That one is essentially a day that follows the 29 or 30 days of fasting. And on this day, it actually becomes prohibited and unlawful for somebody to fast. So if they've got some person who wants to be a, um, some kind of serious Puritan, uh, wants to overdo, uh, overly, overly religious, and he says, no, I want to fast on this day as well. What's one more day? He'll actually be sinful in the, in the faith for doing so. The Prophet ﷺ said, it's a day of eating, drinking, and for joy. So accept that from God. What kind of dry 
asceticism or what kind of dry uh, religiosity is this that you don't accept that from God? God says, worship at this time. This is a time that is not for that. It's for eating and drinking and you can enjoy that. So, when it comes after the day of Eid, <clears throat> there's a hadith, uh, there's a tradition that when the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, moved from Mecca, Mecca to Medina, he saw that there were two days that the Arabs were had as a celebration day. Now, I've looked far and wide and the research shows that you can't figure out exactly what they were based upon. It's probably some, maybe some remnant of some Abrahamic tradition or somewhere else. We just don't know what that is, right? I'm getting a bit technical here. But the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said that, look, God has transplanted these days. God has replaced these days with the two Eids. So now this is, these are the two Eids for you. The first Eid, as I mentioned, <clears throat> is very significant in the fact that it finishes the 30 days of fasting or 29 days. The first thing that happens in the morning, there's a long tradition. Actually, many Muslims aren't aware of this uh, uh, from my, from my uh, experience. It says that when that, morning when that morning arrives, the angels spread out on all the paths and they begin to call out, unfortunately, in a, I mean, this is my word, unfortunately, in a sound that only, uh, only uh, everybody but the human and jinn can hear, right? Everybody but the human being can hear. And they say, come to a Lord who is immensely giving and benevolent. That's what, that's what uh, these angels say. Now, we don't hear that, but we know that we have to go to the mosque to pray. Generally, we then go f to perform a special prayer in the morning. So, Eids are characterized by a special prayer in the morning, right? which is the Eid prayer. Eid prayers in London generally take place in mosques because the weather is a bit um, difficult to predict. But if you go to, I've been to Africa and I've been to other places, and there what you see is, you actually see that they always try to hold an Eid outside of town, outside the, uh, in, on the outskirts of the town or city, in a large field. Because the whole idea of Eid prayer is that everybody should come together. Everybody's encouraged to come out for this prayer and do it together. You can't do Eid on your own, Eid prayer on your own. Every other prayer, except the Friday prayer, you, you can do on your own. But this one has to be done in congregation. Everybody comes out for this one. And you see people coming out of woodwork and everything, and they come to this prayer, right? The point of this prayer is that you do the prayer, <clears throat> and, then God, uh, and then this hadith says that when the people are at prayer, God asks the angels. Now I know there's a lot of metaphysics involved here. Right? And if you're not used to metaphysics, I know this might sound really strange to some of you. But God says to the angels that what is the reward or the payment for an, a laborer, for a worker, once they finish their deeds, once they finish their work and their, uh, and their responsibilities. So the angels, they reply <clears throat> that the only reward for that is that you give them their reward in full. You give them their payment in full. I mean, there is a tradition, by the way, in Islam, which uh, from the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, which says that pay the laborer before his sweat dries. Pay the laborer before his or her sweat dries, which means don't dilly-dally in payment. Right? Now, I know we get payments at the end of the month here, right? generally speaking. Right? And that's allowed because that's a custom and that's understandable. Right? But, uh, so yes, they're telling God that that is the case, that you must pay them fully. So then God says, I make you witness. He says to the angels, I make you witness that I have, I have decreed that their reward 
of their fasting and their standing night vigils at night and so on, my satisfaction, I've made it my satisfaction, I will be satisfied with them and I will forgive them. Now you can all return from this prayer, place of prayer, you can all return and you can go being totally forgiven. Now, for our uh, Muslim uh, colleagues here, what, uh, uh, who, who's heard this tradition before? Right, so that's a minority. Right? That's a minority. But it's a very interesting one. It actually makes going for the Eid prayer less t- uh, troublesome, less cumbersome. You're actually like, I'm going there for a reason. Otherwise, I used to wonder, okay, it's just a prayer. It's just a prayer. It's a special prayer. You don't do it on any other day. You do it on this time. But actually, now that you actually go there for rewards. So when you come back, you feel a greater sense of enjoyment. This is what the sense of enjoyment and Eid is all about. Now, to move on, <clears throat> there's another thing we do on this day. We do a Sadaqatul Fitr. In Islam, pretty much with every excuse, there is something about feeding somebody, about helping others. There's, there's just so many excuses to do that. You do a wrong in Hajj, in the pilgrimage, you make a mistake, you pay. Who do you pay? You pay a poor person. If it's a small infraction, you, uh, you basically pay a small ticket, right? You pay uh, three, four pounds. If you do a big one, then you sacrifice an animal and you feed, right? There's just so much, there, there's just so much of that encouragement as penalties and so on, just so that we can distribute the wealth. So at the end of Ramadan, for this day of Eid, before you go to the prayer, it's, a, it's necessary to pay a sadaqatul fitr, which is, I mean, it's only about three, four, five pounds, but you pay that on behalf of each member of your family. It has to be paid before the Eid prayer. whole purpose of it is that it's given to the poor so that they can also enjoy the day of Eid, get their supplies, get their foods, maybe some clothing, whatever they need to do. Now, one of the mistakes we make is that we actually pay when we go to the Eid prayer place. And that's quite a challenge then to get it to the poor straight away. You don't have poor people in London like lining the streets generally. I mean, you do have poor people in London, but you don't have them. In poorer countries, you got out of your house and there were poor people and you gave it to them. And that was a day when they became like, quite rich, maybe, you know, at least. But, so I would encourage our, uh, 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 you know, our brothers and sisters here that give it before, during Ramadan, so that it gets to the poor people beforehand, so that they can enjoy the, the Eid as well as we do. Right, now <clears throat> people come back and I tell you something, it's so amazing, you've met somebody, your own brother, your own child, whoever it may be, you've gone to eat prayer with them. As soon as the prayer finishes, everybody wants to meet each other. And there's this just immense amount of love that's shown. I mean, you've just been with them about an hour before, now the prayer's finished and you're just like embracing everybody and getting so excited and happy. It's just in the air, you know, because of this sense of feeling. Then it starts the rest of the day. A lot of people, what they do is uh, they go to the graveyard to see their deceased, to go and visit their deceased in the graveyard. Now, that's not necessarily something that's uh, particularly ordered or even recommended. But the reason why I think people do this is because generally in most places, the Eid prayer area was outside the town next to generally or very close to the cemetery. So it was just convenient that you're out here already. Let's just pass by the cemetery. Let's do some reading and uh, some prayer visit our uh, deceased in the cemetery and then we go back home. So a lot of people still do that today. But as I said, that there's no particular significance on doing it on that day. And then after that, you go home and then the visitations begin. So you start visiting one another. right? And again, that's just something we do because of the, the whole aspect of the joy. And it's actually an excuse, to be honest. 
right? In America, we had uh, Thanksgiving, right? There you had to have a turkey, though, right? But in this case, uh, you, you go and visit, people come to your house, and then there's generally one house that everybody chooses, maybe the parents' home or something, and then everybody gets together for the Eid meal or something like that. But again, this is, you wear new clothes, you exchange gifts, children really love this day because they get a lot of gifts on this day. And uh, so that, that's basically how they generally spend the day of Eid. Now, one thing very interesting is that when the month of Ramadan ends and uh, Eid comes in, the Eid is actually on the first day of the next month, which is called Shawwal. Now, Shawwal, the first day of Shawwal also s- symbolizes something else. It symbolizes the beginning of the months of Hajj. Now, what are the months of Hajj? Two months and ten days, basically two months and ten days prior to the Hajj taking place, those are all called the months of Hajj. And that starts at Eid al-Fitr. So while we don't know it generally, the months of Hajj have begun. Not the days of Hajj, the months of Hajj. The general, because that's when people would have been preparing to go for Hajj. That is when, if you have enough money to go for Hajj, Hajj becomes obligatory. The pilgrimage becomes obligatory upon you. If you had money before that and you lost it the day before, Hajj would not be obligatory on you if you didn't have it during the months of Hajj. So that's like this time that qualifies you, obligates you if you have enough uh, means to go for Hajj. So, <clears throat> now what happens is, the months of Hajj begin. Some people, they leave for Hajj early. Nowadays, I think the maximum Hajj is generally about six weeks, I think. And uh, most people in London, England, they go two to three weeks. Anyway, now as we go, we pass one month, the second month, and then the third month is Dhul Hijjah. So you have Shawwal, Dhul Ka'da, and then Dhul Hijjah. That is the month of Hajj now, the particular month. And on the 10th of this month, is or the ninth of this month, the tenth of this month, those are the main days of the pilgrimage. Now there's going to be two sets of people. There's going to be some people who've gone for the pilgrimage, they're in Mecca. And there's going to be people who are left at home, the vast majority. The elite have gone because they've got money and they've gone, right? Somehow they've got there. The rest of us are at home. And we both have responsibilities uh, uh, coming up to this Eid. So the first nine days, the Eid is on the 10th of the month. So the first nine days, it's recommended to fast. And scholars actually say that these nine days are the most virtuous days of the year to fast in. They actually compare it to the last 10 nights of Ramadan. They say that the last 10 nights of Ramadan are the most superior nights of the year, while these days are the most superior days of the year. It's very interesting. So we're recommended to fast. A lot of people don't fast during this time because of recommendation. They've fasted in Ramadan. And uh, uh, what people do though is that on the ninth of the month, just the day before, before the Hajj or before the Eid rather, uh, before the Eid rather, not the Hajj, that is a day when the fasting is very strongly recommended. In fact, <clears throat> it's very strongly recommended. The Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said, anybody who fasts on this day, I... I have great hope in God that He forgives their one year previous sins and also one year future sins. Sounds like a good deal. So a lot of people fast on this day. Unless you're in Hajj, then you don't fast on this day because this is one of the business, one of the very intense days in Hajj when you stand in Arafah and you pray to God. And the Prophet Muhammad, there was only one year, peace be upon him, when he did not fast that, that uh, when he did not fast this day. That was in his last and final year when he went for the Hajj. He 
He drank milk uh, in the daytime proving that he wasn't fasting. And very interestingly, he actually died the next year. What's very interesting is that some of the scholars, they say just as, a, as an interesting point, that if you're guaranteed your forgiveness for your sins for the next year, then hopefully that's a good sign that you live for the next year at least. If you're guaranteed by fasting on Arafah, on the ninth of the month, your past year sins forgiven and your future year sins forgiven, how are you going to be forgiven for the next year if you don't live to maybe commit any sins? I'm talking about minor sins. So again, this is not guarantee, okay? You, you can't sue anybody for that. This is not a guarantee. This is just a nice point. And what they say is, look at the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. He fasted that day every year, except his last year, when he went for the Hajj, he was in Hajj, he didn't fast, and he passed away. But again, this is not anything that's mentioned in the Hadith itself as being that you will stay alive. or anything. It's just a nice point that somebody came up with and I wanted to share it with you. Now on the 10th, which is the Eid day, the whole world is going to be, the whole Muslim world is going to be getting into their clothes and they're going to be preparing for their sacrifice, the Eid prayer. Again, you go for Eid prayer in the morning and then you do a sacrifice. The people on Hajj, on the pilgrimage, they don't wear new clothes on that day. They are on that day, they have their two white garments. You've seen it probably on TV or if you've been, you've experienced it, the two white garments. And on this day, this is now the first day that you can actually take those off and come out of your pilgrim state. And you can only do this if you've gone and pelted the devils. I'll, let me go into that a bit. And you have um, gone and done your sacrifice. And once you've done that, now you're allowed to cut your hair, which signals that I'm out of this state. And then you can take a bath, you can use perfume now, and you can come out and wear your normal clothing. So that's basically for the people up there. I was just there, and that's what I did. But the people who, the vast majority around the world, what are they going to do? They will start the day of Eid. They would have probably booked an animal sacrifice somewhere. Right? Did some of you do sacrifice this year? Anybody did it themselves? No. No, I think that's very difficult in England right now. I mean, there are still some people who go to a slaughterhouse and do it themselves. But slowly, slowly, it's actually becoming a payment now. You just send it to some country, you don't even eat from it. Whereas the whole point of the sacrifice was that you rear the animal. Right? You feed it and everything and then you sacrifice it for God. Just like the whole point of this sacrifice comes from Abraham, peace be upon him, the patriarch. Right? That's where it comes from. Um, so the idea is, I mean the story, I know there's a difference in the Judaic and the Islamic traditions in this case. Abraham, we believe, peace be upon him, after he was about 70 or so, he didn't have child through Sarah, Sarah, alayhi salam. Then he had... Uh, what in English is referred to, who in English is referred to as Hagar or Hajar or Ajar in Arabic. He had a child with her after an old age, after being so old. He is told to leave them in Mecca. There's a long story, but he tells, he's told to leave them in Mecca. And then he goes back and he's told that you must sacrifice your son who is now about 12 or 13 years of age. He gets a son after such an age and then after that he's 13 years of age, he's seeing him grow up and he's saying, in his dream he's being told you must sacrifice your son. For three days he endures this dream and then he realizes that there's no escape from this is from God, this is a revelation from God that I must do this. So unlike many parents of today, He's actually very sensible, right? He's a prophet. So he says to his son, Ismail, this is the Muslims believe this was Ismail or Ishmael, right? This is what I'm seeing. 
ماذا ترى what do you think now imagine that conversation how difficult would that conversation be so his son says ifal ma tu'mar satajiduni insha Allah min as-sabirin do what you've been commanded to do you'll find that i'm a patient one now he's he is supposed to be a great person as well and again i mean if you just put yourself in that scene that's quite now as he's taking his son to do this now in the Judaic tradition they believe this was Isaac not Ishmael right this is a big contention that's been going on for centuries but let's leave that for now as he's going there the devil appears to him in three places saying trying to mislead him that no this is a crazy idea or whatever the case is and he picks up a few stones and he throws it at the devil and it disappears it comes again he throws a few stones comes again throws a few stones and then now he's laid his son down is trying to sacrifice him So he's trying to now sacrifice him but nothing's happening and then suddenly he's told by God that this was just a test and he sent a ram from heaven a nice healthy ram from heaven and he's told to sacrifice that and until today this is a tradition that Muslims continue now the most interesting thing i mean i know i'm diverging here but among the three great religions of the world uh, the, the three abrahamic religions because what's interesting is that you know abraham he was such a patriarch that after him in the line and succession of prophets every single prophet was actually then from his children from his descendants you know if you look at moses jacob joseph david um who else uh, solomon uh, peace be upon them all muhammad jesus all of them are his descendants plus the four major books the scriptures the 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 old testament the torah the the evangel the 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 bible the uh, the the psalms of david the the quran they're all from prophets within his progeny that's the, the very high status that's why he's so revered so now when he left his wife there where they were in mecca where there was absolutely nothing in those days there was no water no tree in fact it was just a pure desert his wife is left there with her child and the child is thirsty she needs to feed it so she goes and there are two mounts nearby the safa and the marwa she climbs up one of them to look for water she climbs down runs across the valley climbs up the second one can't find anything and she is desperate she does this seven times from one to the next to the next and seven she does these seven circuits and then she comes back down and she sees that a well a, a water source has erupted from where her son is lying down that's the zamzam water that muslims will bring you know when they come back from the hajj right now what i want to point out here is that this independent single mother uh, well seeming like like a single mother I mean, she was she was obviously with ibrahim but she was left alone there and told she was told to leave her he was told to leave her there this is all her effort and in islam until today if you go for hajj you are obliged obligated to go between these two mountains they're not much of a mountain anymore but it's still about a 2 mile total walk that you have to do between the two this in the three religions according to the uh, our studies it is the only act a right is the only right or act of worship that has its basis in a woman's action right Now unfortunately these things are, are not in the four what's in the four is that Islam is a misogynist religion and all the rest of it I mean these are things that need to be really understood today actually feminists are actually discovering Hagar 
like wow what a woman she was i mean a classic you know historical individual that did whatever she did and brings up this whole civilization now it's very interesting i mean i know, I know i'm belaboring this point but now she's got this water there is a tribe from yemen of these original arabs they are traveling and they they you know in a desert you look for water and they see and they come upon this area and they see water like wow wonderful this water is nice can we stay here with you so she said she was very shrewd you can tell by this she said yes you can stay here because you need people it's, it'd be nice to have people around here right but no control over the water water is in my control i mean that's a very independent woman right okay you can be here but no the water is under my control and then a whole you know a whole community uh, uh, develops there ishmael gets married in that community abraham keeps visiting and it's a long story but anyway all of that is memorialized in the hajj and that's why the muslims go every year and the rest of the muslims around the world they do the same sacrifice wherever they are in the world as long as you've got the ability to do so if you don't have the money you don't do it but if you have the money you do that sacrifice so this day is a very interesting day it's a day of sacrifice you can't do the sacrifice until you've done the morning prayer so you go to do the morning prayer and then after that people want to do their sacrifice now as i said today you've paid somebody um, and I, what I would recommend to people is that you can pay for sacrifices in other countries of the world where they're, they're a lot more needy for meat, alright? You can do that. But you should also do one here so that at least our families, our children understand the significance. Otherwise, they're just going to think it's like a payment to you have to make, right? You're never going to see it. There's no significance in that. So it's important, I think, we do that. I'll just tell you that, uh, you know, in the first Eid, because you fasted for 30 days, there's actually a recommendation that you eat something before you go to the prayer in the morning. So the Prophet Muhammad is related that he ate dates before he went for the prayer. In this Eid, you know what the best thing is to eat on the second Eid, the big Eid, the sacrifice Eid? Meat. Meat. Because that's the day when you say it. So the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, would come back, they would sacrifice the animal, I mean... And they would immediately, the in, you know, the, the liver and those kind of things, they would do that first because that's the fastest to cook. It takes just a few moments. And then they would cook the meat. That's why some scholars, like following, the, following this very closely, there was one scholar that I know, Sheikh Zakaria, he would not eat anything but meat on that day. And not to, not to stuff himself, but to eat. Now I have to tell you one thing, and I want to say this to my Muslim brothers and sisters, and uh, in particular our Asian people who love their meat. We, we, we are a bit too much in our meat. We need to take it care. And if there's some vegetarians here, they're going to get excited about this. But um, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was a semi-vegetarian. What does that mean? How, do you, how are you a semi-vegetarian? Essentially, he ate meat and he loved meat when he got it. He loved the shoulder and he would say, give me another one, right? But the majority of his days were spent without meat. In fact, there are traditions which mention from him that meat has an addiction, right? Just like wine does. Um, according to one other uh, scholar, eating meat for 40 days hardens your heart. Now, I don't need to tell you all that kind of stuff, right? The, the, the cardiologist will tell you these kind of things. But what we've done at home is that we started with one meat-free day a, a, a week. Like no meat. Because, you know, even Indian Pakistanis, what they do is even when they cook lentils, they have to have a bit of meat in there to flavor it. Right? It's kind of crazy. And uh, it's really unhealthy to do too much of it. So we started off with one meat-free day a week. Now, thanks to God, we actually do on, we only do meat about two and a half, maybe three days a week if we're lucky. 
right? And it's, I, th I found it to be very beneficial. Right? And that means any meat. That means any meat. And of course, then you've got the hierarchy of meats, the reds and whites and so on. But I'll leave that right now. That's not our point. But on the day of Eid, enjoy your meat. On the day of Eid, enjoy your meat. You know, have a barbecue, do whatever you like, enjoy that meat on that day because that's a gift of God. That's a hospitality from God. Of course, you don't have to do it on the same day. You're allowed to do it up to three days. What's interesting is that you're not allowed to fast. It's again unlawful to fast on this Eid as well and for three days following it. For a lot of people in those days, this was probably the one time when you got meat because there were no refrigerators, no freezers, hot climate. How long is meat going to survive for? That's why they dried meat. So they had biltong, you know, uh, beef jerky or whatever you call it, right? But otherwise, meat was not so easily available either. They would, for, three, for, for the two Eids you're not allowed to fast, plus three days after this Eid, so five days of the year you are not allowed to fast. Even if you did fast, you'd be sinning, right? So that, that's what we, um, uh, th that's specifically to do with this Eid. While these, I mean, uh, I just want to ask a question. <clears throat> How many of us thought that Eid was just a day of celebration, didn't really understand the, the religious significance of you know, all of these uh, religious and spiritual uh, acts that were related to it? Anybody? Right? So, as I said, that's what I thought. But once I understood the significance that on the day of Eid al-Adha, Around the Eid al-Adha, as you know, we do takbirs. We glory, we magnify God. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, God is great, God is great. We, do, we start the day before and we carry on for three, you know, for three days. Uh, so there's about four days of this that we do this for. So now you can understand that it's not just a day to just enjoy yourself. right? It's a day that has religious significance. And then it's just how do you reconcile religious significance, spiritual paradigm, plus enjoying yourself. But haven't you seen that you can actually enjoy and people do enjoy themselves straight afterwards? That they start you know, visiting everybody, each other and the gifts and there's a lot of discussion that takes place. Basically, another aspect here is that the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him said that for every fasting person there are two sources of joy. One, when he breaks his fast. He or she finishes their fast at the end of the day and when you get that date or milkshake or cold water and you know in London in England when you have 18 and a half mine was about 20 because I, I do the earlier suhoor so from 1 o'clock in the morning right to 9.30 9.25 so we got about 3 and a half hours to when I went to South Africa it was actually 12 hours and 12 hours so while there was so much easier but I felt that there was no time in the day because once iftar happens then it just kind of all finishes and they were telling me, even scholars, they're like, don't you guys, like, can't you guys just do seven hours or whatever? I said, no, no, it's fine, we do it. Even our children do it, right? It's kind of very interesting that when you're put into that situation, you can actually do it. And it's very healthy, it gives a good detox from that. So the joy is all part of the remembrance of Allah because you're to told to enjoy that day along with doing all of these and be happy that God has given you the, uh, basically the joy of that Eid al-Fitr is that God has given you the ability to fast for 30 days and now you enjoy and enjoy that you've been given the reward. In the other one, it's because it's Hajj, it's a pilgrimage and you've got all of this historical significance that it's completely soaked in, right, to, to take care of. So the, I was talking about that particular hadith of the Prophet Muhammad. He was saying that for when you finish your fast, you get this excitement of being able to eat. 
He said, the second excitement that you're going to get is on the day you meet your Lord, when He rewards you for it. And I tell you something, if you fasted for 18 hours or 20 hours or even 12 hours, and when you are then allowed to eat, you know the happiness that you get and the joy that you feel. If meeting with the Lord is as good as that, that is more than enough. Right? That is what's going to happen. However, the other joy that could be incorporated into this is that when you finish the 30 days, the Eid day is a day of joy as well. At the finishing of the entire month, not just the finishing of a day, but the entire month. What some scholars have said is Ramadan is the time to make the effort and show your devotion to God wherever you are in the world because Ramadan is done in the comfort of your own home and your locality. And if you do well enough and you are chosen, you will be called in the next Eid to the holy sacred precincts in Mecca. That is a culmination and only three, I mean, this year there were about three million or so people there. And believe me, while it's tough, there's a wonderful feeling where you're all doing the same thing. I tell you, in the three million people, and of course I didn't mingle with every one of those three million people, but I mingled with a lot of people. I mean, there's no way you can avoid that, right? I only saw one petty argument taking place. Like these guys were bickering at each other. And believe me, it's hot. It's 40 degrees to 43 degrees. And you are tired. You are stressed. Your, the food, the clothing, you know, whatever it is. You're not in your normal surroundings. And you could, but the whole lesson of that is amazing. That I only saw one petty argument in which was diffused. In my group that I went, 100 people, not a single argument did I come across. That's amazing. That's amazing. When a time for prayer comes, nobody has to stand there to organize Everybody just kind of stands in line, in orderly lines. When you look at an aerial view of it, you just see around the, the house of God, the Kaaba, you just see people just automatically there. And you probably couldn't do this in any other festival or in any other carnival or whatever large meeting. You need ushers and everything. Yes, they've got police there to make sure that people don't do crazy stuff. But otherwise, prayer time, everybody just stands. And they know where to stand and they just stand and they pray. So the day of Eid... While it's a day of celebration, they're actually based on very specific rites and that have to be completed. Uh, happiness is enjoyed through them. They're not days of a you know, a, an absolute expression of merrymaking or a day when God is said to look the other way, that you can do what you want, God is looking the other way. That's in some traditions, right? Or a day that you can just drink as much as you want just make sure you take a taxi home and you don't drive home. That's not what it's about. It's, there's a religious aspect of it, but within that, we get to enjoy ourselves, And that's what actually adds to it when you're in tune with the spiritual aspect of it. So I'm going to pray to God that He allow us to enjoy our Eids even further now, that we've understood the significance and truly, truly understand and imbue the significance and make it even more worthwhile because as people of faith this is what we want from our lives that we've got uh, God to stand in front of and may he reward us all just a few practical considerations you know f because uh, that that is where the challenge lies for many of us right this is my observation and I know you've you've got um, maybe your boss is sitting here as well you got some Muslims 
who try to be all righteous and pious and very practicing. So they tell their boss, it's necessary for me to pray. And yes, it's necessary on them. I'm not denying that. But then they will take extra time. They will come back late. They won't do their work properly. They'll make excuses. And what that does is that creates a very bad image. Then you've got another extreme who want to just hide and don't even want to say they're Muslim. Right? So you've got that extreme as well. Right? You've got a whole you know, range of people in between. What we need to be is people proud of their faith, but contributors. Contributors, that you're valued for your job. And I've got a number of friends like that. who, uh, A friend of mine, for example, he is working for a housing association. When he went there, he says, look, I need to pray. I'm Muslim, I need to pray. Generally in summer, it's not too much. In lunch break, you can do your middle prayer. And then the other prayers are much later, so it's okay. But in winter, it's a bit of a challenge because all of our prayers are, bef- you know, sunset is at four o'clock. And then before that, you've got another prayer. And then at afternoon, you've got another prayer. So they said, okay, we'll look at it because I mean, maybe just making some claims. So they did some research. And the next meeting, they said, yes, you know what? We understand you have to pray as a practicing Muslim. We're going to rent a room in the, I think it was a holiday in Days Inn next door, right? Very convenient place. So he, was a, he, he got shocked. He said, no, no, you don't need to spend so much money doing that. I don't need a whole room for myself for the whole year. I just need like a, you know, about a, um, enough space that just lets me kneel on the ground. So they found a storeroom, they put a carpet in there and they gave that to him. But the reason they will do that for somebody is if we are contributors valued and we are seen as equal with everybody else trying to do the right thing, then we're allowed to do these kind of things if, you know, if we're allowed to do these things. But if you try to claim your so-called rights without actually contributing, then that makes it very, very, very... And I've heard some bad stories about this, so it's my responsibility to, uh, to, to, uh, to mention this. But uh, I pray that God make us all very valuable and make us contributors and make us uh, of those who are both successful, all of us successful in this world, successful in the hereafter. Thank you very much for this opportunity. And uh, I hope you all the best and many more programs. Thank you very much. Yeah, so I actually, in, in, I actually referred to that and then I went somewhere else. So yeah, very good point. Thanks for picking that up. The recommendation in Eid prayer is that because it should be something where everybody comes together and most of our mosques won't be big enough for that. So generally people of an area, they tend to all come to a single place which is a I mean the best place is a park right but in England that's very difficult for us to do that each time because it could be raining and it'd be very miserable so that's why well that's for one reason the other reason is that London has how many mosques that has I mean we have we have about I think um, one million Muslims in London which is about 15% of the population of 8 million and we have I think the last time, which was 10 years ago, about at least 100 mosques then. Now we probably have about 200 mosques in London alone. There's just no way with the traffic and everything that you could all pray in one place. In Birmingham, I think they tried to get a huge crowd in one, one place this year. But they were still, they had to have prayer in mosques. So while it's ideal for everybody to get together, maybe boroughs can get together. You know, because we kind of have our little... So there is a recommendation that everybody come together. So it's a good thing to do it in a park when you can. It's, uh, we're not actually dismissing the mosque for doing that because in the time of the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him the Eid prayer wasn't done in a mosque it was actually done outside in what they called a musalla 
The second Eid is called a greater Eid because it's got much more historical significance. With the first Eid, it's the end of the month of Ramadan. That is something that started in Islam. But when you look at the second Eid, that comes from Abraham's time, peace be upon him. It's got a lot more actions in there. You've got a sacrifice taking place. It's not just the prayer. There's a prayer, there's the sacrifice, there's the takbirs on the day, there's the hajj pilgrimage taking place. That's why it's a big Eid. The Arafah the day before, there's a lot more going on during that time. And uh, uh, the, 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 thank you for reminding me, but one of the reasons why I find them very good to be close together is because they're connected with the months of hajj. As I mentioned, it starts... Shawwal starts the month of Hajj. Number two, you know everything, spirit, you know the spiritual elevation that you've received in Ramadan, right? I think it helps that the Hajj comes again, you get another opportunity to remember God and boost yourself up a, uh, a bit more so that it can carry you for the next several months. Personally, I find that to be the, the benefit of it. To clarify, right now we have a square, right? It's a cube instead of a black box. Black box remind me of planes, right? So it's a cube. In the time of Abraham, peace be upon him, it was not a cube. It was rectangle. So you know the semicircular boundary we have with it? That was all part of it. So it was actually rectangle. He had two doors, one to go in and one to go out. And it was on ground floor, uh, meaning the door was on the ground. Uh, during, uh, over the centuries, the house had become dilapidated. The people, the Quraysh, the, the tribe of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, before he became a prophet... They decided to rebuild it. They said we must only spend our purely gotten wealth, no ill-gotten wealth. And they could only get enough supplies to make it a square. And they had another aspect there. They put only one door and they made it higher. So that they could, they could essentially regulate who goes in. So it was made a square. Then the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, comes. And he mentioned a few times just as a desire that if... It wasn't that the people had, have just recently become Muslim and all their hard work they would probably see destroyed. I would actually make it, turn it back into the rectangle, right? But I'm not doing it because I'm concerned about their sensitivities. So he left it the way it was. About 60 years later, 50, 60 years later, Abu Bakr anh's grandson, Abdullah ibn Zubayr, He'd remembered this all along. He was a child in the Prophet's time. When he became the governor, he decided to do that. He made it into the rectangular shape. So where is that gone now? His enemy, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, this is getting into history, but his enemy, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, who hated him, when he deposed him, he put it back into the square. Now, he's gone. The next leader, I think it was Abu Ja'far al-Mansur or somebody, of the Abbasids or somebody, he came to Imam Malik, one of the great scholars of Medina Munawwara, that shall we make it back into the rectangle as the Prophet Muhammad had desired, peace be upon him. And that's when Imam Malik said no. He said this is going to become a plaything, that every new ruler that comes along, every new dynasty that comes along is deciding no, we want to do this because the other guys did this, so leave it now. So now we have the square. Now, going back to... The actual question is that it's not the house which is important. It's that location which is important. That's why when you are up in the big hotel or up, up there, you don't have to face the house directly in prayer. You actually face its direction. And what tells us this is that it's actually the atmospheric location that goes all the way up. And our belief is that on the seventh heaven, 
there is the Kaaba of the angels called Al Baytul Ma'mur. It's directly parallel to this. And the angels go around that one. 70,000 get to go around it every day. Once they've gone around it once, they never get a chance again because there's just so many angels. We at least can go every five years, but they can't. Right? So that is the significance is actually of the location as opposed to the actual bricks of the house. So again in this one, you do the sacrifice, then you're told it's recommended to divide it into three. So if you've done a goat or a, a, a nice lamb, you divide it into three portions. One you give to, distribute among your family, another one you distribute to the poor, and a third one you keep for yourself. Now if somebody wants, they can keep the whole thing for themselves. It's only recommended to distribute that way, but the idea is that you distribute it. So what we've done in Hackney, we've got a local charity, so we actually... Um, we actually, from before Eid, we run a campaign that please, whoever wants to do Eid for poor people, let us know. We, we, they, they do a local sacrifice somewhere and they give us the meat and we take it to homeless shelters, uh, domestic abuse places and other shelters like that and we actually give the meat out. 